0: Stir up thy power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let thy bountiful grace and mercy speedily help us and deliver us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be honor and glory, world without end. Amen. That is the Collect for today, the third Sunday of Advent, December the 12th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. The first lesson that you're going to see today it should would normally be a psalm, but today what we have is actually what's known as the first song of Isaiah, or Canticle 9. The canticle refers to, um, if you go to the Anglican prayer book, what you'll see is for morning and evening prayer services every day, there are canticles that are there as... Um, sort of readings between the psalm between the lessons and they're there as sort of worship songs in between the reading of the scripture and so canticle 9 is this one and as i said it's called the first song of isaiah and it's taken from isaiah 12 verses two through six. And so the link, if you, if you go to the, um, to the page, the link that you'll see will be to a sung version of Canticle 9. It was one of my favorite songs and has been for a long, long time. Um, from the, probably the first time I heard it, I fell in love with it. And so it, it's absolutely a wonderful and glorious uh, worship song, and, and, and I won't ruin it for you by trying to sing it in any shape, form, or fashion. So we've been busy around here in Asheville. It's The weather is goofy as it can be. We had some really cold days, but today it's a really nice day. Uh, as far as the temperature is concerned, it's kind of cloudy and overcast, and they're expecting rain, and there's thunderstorms all around us. And we need to, to be in prayer for the people from uh, Arkansas and Kentucky and the other places where the tornado hit and the, the lives that have been so deeply affected by that. It's an awful, awful thing with these tornadoes that broke out on Friday. Um, and so we need to keep those people in our prayers the, because they're as they sort through all this and find out the extent of the damage and the extent of the loss of human life there. So we need to keep those people in our prayers right now. We, we need to be in prayer for the nation. We need to be in prayer for many, many things um, as we look and we see yeah, the, this issue on the border with Ukraine and and russia and then also china's saber rattling over taiwan and there's just so much going on that that all we can do is just come before him and 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 say lord you know all things and you're in charge of all things we believe in your sovereignty show us what we can do you know what action we can take and if and if if the answer is just pray then just pray um so it we've We've got to I think, think our way through these things as the church and, and as we come into this season of advent. and um, it, we've gone through these so bizarre almost two years of time now and and how do we re- relate to that and how do we relate to one another? and And um, it's important that we continue to, to gather, and it's important that we continue to praise him together. I ran into a friend of mine last week that I hadn't seen in, I don't know, six or seven years probably. He's a pastor here in town. Uh, we, our churches used to jointly worship together some, and then we both moved into other areas of the city. And so we stopped uh, worshiping together, and, and, and I missed him, and I missed that church. I really loved the people in that church, and, and it was wonderful to run into him and say, you know, how, kind of how things are going. And he said, well, you know, we had great momentum in growth of the church up until the time of COVID, and then, then it got just stopped and knocked backwards in the other way. And he said, we've about regained where we were at that point in time. There are some people who are just now coming back in for worship, but it but it really harmed the church and the mission that, that had been going there. And so I'm praying for him and for the, for the work that he's doing, because I, I know, I know this man and I know his heart. And so it it's, it's sad to see that. And then, you know, I've got friends who have come down with COVID this week and who were quite ill from it. Um, had both had to be hospitalized. They're home now and, and doing better. And so I'm, I'm thankful and happy for that. It's just, it's just been the most bizarre two years of my life at 61 years old. Um, I would, I just, don't even know, you know, there, there's no analog for it. There's nothing that's come before that says this is how you cope with this, and this is how you do these things. And so I think everybody is is pretty much looking for a way through, you know, whether it's uh, compliance with all the mandates or, or whether it's non-compliance with all the mandates. I think those are both, in, in their own ways, they can be legitimate expressions of how Christians navigate these things. I, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. And so I, I hope that wherever you are, that you're doing well, that that you're you're safe, and that you're you're taken care of, and and that 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 life is is better than it was certainly almost two years ago now, but. But it's been it has been interesting to say the least, and so we we've had kind of a busy week here, just you know kind of running around doing things and and everything is more difficult at the moment because well, it's that season when the whole world is in the stores and shops and everything else. and so it's been that kind of a week. I'm looking forward to to a couple of days of being in Chattanooga um, with family before, prior to Christmas. Um, we're gonna go then and then be back here and be at home on christmas i'm looking forward to to that looking forward to to being here um but looking forward to being there for a few days as well and and one of the on sunday next week i'm going to be able to worship with friend uh who is a music minister of a a baptist church down in chickamauga georgia Um, and i'm looking forward to being with with my friend jimmy and um and Janie, his wife and and so uh, i'm excited to be able to spend time um Worshipping the Lord with with others, you know. Other, when I say others, I mean people I don't know, <laughs> primarily. But but it's but they're Christians, and so we are one. So I'm looking forward to that, and I, and I hope that that the Lord blesses you during this season, and that it doesn't become so busy that you're not able to truly prepare yourself to receive uh, with joy the coming of Christ. So uh, today we're we're going to be in uh, the prophecy of Zephaniah um, in chapter three, verses fourteen to twenty and the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 to 18, and then the epistle to the Philippian church, which is one of those epistles Paul wrote from from his Roman imprisonment um, and to encourage the churches there not to be discouraged because of his situation. And so we're, we're going to look at that and, and we're going to think about what do all these things mean? It's 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 important for us to ask the question, if this is true, then what do I do about it? Um, I was looking at some things today then that for just, you know, I, I like to look at Christian history kind of stuff and, and see, you know, you can learn greatly from the past. And so today what I came across was a guy that I had actually never heard of before. His name is Lars Olson. <laughs> he was Norwegian, and he became a missionary to India. And he was in India for a well, let's see, uh, forty-seven years. He spent in India, died there uh, yesterday, on eleven December nineteen ten. So, but he's an interesting guy, to say the least. He he described himself as a completely lost person um, when he was eighteen years old. He he was um, he said I was dead. <laughs> absolutely dead. My heart was hard as a stone. I had turned my back upon God and plunged into riotous living. I had suffered shipwreck and everything. And when he says that he had suffered shipwreck and everything, he's not making that up. He was in prison. He was in prison for three years from the time he was 16 until the time he was, uh, no, 18, I'm sorry, until he was 21. He was in prison for uh, robbery. And so he, he didn't he refused to name the other robbers, and so he was in jail during that period of time. And there was a girl that he had known named Anna Olsom who visited him in jail, and she had faith in him and believed in him. And while he was in prison, he began to read religious books. And then he decided that what he really wanted to do was become a pastor, and in particular, he wanted to become a missionary. So when he gets out of prison in 1861, not surprisingly, nobody's particularly excited to take him on as a missionary. The Norwegians just ignored him. And so somebody suggested that he go to a mission society in Berlin called the Gossner Mission Society. And so he went there, and they accepted him as a trainee. He worked and studied and fasted for two years. He lived almost entirely on bread, cheese, and water, and, and prepared himself, and then went to India in 1863. So he, he works there for a season of time, and then a couple of years later, she comes, Anna Olmsom comes, and they get married. Uh, while they're there and a couple of years later they and some others decided to leave the mission where they had been and they moved up to an area north uh in northern india and and to work among a a group of people who were oppressed by their neighbors and that group of people were called the santal s-a-n-t-a-l by the time he left there 35 years later um He had given them a a written language. They were illiterate. So he he gave them a written language. He took the language that they spoke and made it into a written language in the same way as was done for the Cherokee here in the United States. He translated the Gospels into that language, wrote hymnals and textbooks for their... Education and appealed to the British government, who was you know was a protectorate, and so he appealed to the British government to protect them, the Santal people, from those who had been around them. He also founded schools and taught farming, the care of animals, carpentry, and all those kinds of things. He wanted a completely indigenous church that had their own uh, language, their own the the scriptures in their own languages, and a local. Um, ministry, where they raised up their own leaders. And so he, they, they continue to flourish in that place today. And if, if he had one message, what that message was was the unbelievable nature of God's grace and the sufficiency of that grace and the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus to cover every sin, including his own and so his, his message was of grace for sinners, and it's as simple as that. And it's the message that, that we all need to proclaim, and that is you have a friend in Christ Jesus. But it, it requires a change of life in order to get there, and it requires a change of life that begins, Paul says, with the transformation of, of your mind and the renewing of the mind. And it begins there, and then it carries on into the heart and out, and flows out into life. And it's the message of John the Baptist that we're going to read today, is, is that, that the gospel changes your life in such a way that you need to know how to live in light of the gospel, in light of the love of God. So in the Zephaniah passage, we get this beautiful um, song poetry here sing aloud o daughter of zion shout o israel rejoice and exult with all your heart o daughter of jerusalem the lord has taken away the judgments against you he has cleared away your enemies and so the lord is proclaiming redemption to his people that he has come back among his people in order to redeem them and restore them and so they are called to worship and it's not always easy to do that when you when you're in exile community and when you, when, you, when you know the state of the land that God had given you, you know that it's fallen into destruction because you saw it in some cases, and you've heard it in other cases, and it can be incredibly discouraging. And so here Zephaniah calls the people to shout aloud and to rejoice and exult with all their hearts because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you and he has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. What a glorious thing that that word right there is. The Lord, the King of Israel is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil. We know that, that there's no evil that can withstand him. If we know that God is in our midst, if we have the assurance of that, that presence of God within us and within the midst of us as the church, then, then we can fear no evil. You will never again fear evil and, and that's exactly the way that that psalm 23 says right that that he is with us i will fear no evil and and that's exactly what we're called to do and we're called to be a fearless people who fear only god who loves us on that day it shall be said to jerusalem fear not O zion let not your hands grow weak The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. What a beautiful picture of, of God being among us can be the most fearful thing that anybody could ever imagine, right? I mean, it's exactly what happened on the mountain at Sinai. The people were so scared of God being in their midst that they said, hey, how about this, Moses? How about we do this this way? How about instead of God coming down here and being among us to proclaim his word, how about you just be our representative before him? Because they were so afraid— of God, because the power of God displayed on the mountain there in Sinai, and so they were were scared to death that they wouldn't live by coming into his presence, and so they deputized Moses to be in his presence. And the presumption at the end of those first 40 days, when he didn't come back down the mountain, was is that, yes, see, we knew that you wouldn't be able to live in the presence of God. You can't be with him that long and still live, and so when he doesn't come back, what they do is they say, let's make God's to take us forward now because they didn't want to deputize somebody else and send them back up there into the presence of God. They were afraid that person would die, and so they they want somebody like Moses. That's actually what's happening there. They're not replacing God. They're replacing Moses at some level. That's what they want. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting his presence among them, and God says, I'm not going to go up with you. Anymore because I'll break out and kill all of you. And Moses said, If you don't if you don't go with us, I'm not going. This project ends right here at Sinai, if you won't go with us. And so God says, All right, I'll send my angel and I'll go with you. And and his his presence among them is proclaimed in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And so they could have confidence out there in the wilderness because they're vulnerable in that place. But if they know God's with them in this physical visible tangible signs of the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night then then we know that we're safe from the wild animals we're safe from the peoples around us and so when he he sends the spies into the land they come back and they've forgotten that power of the presence and they come back and they say you know hey compared to these people we just look like grasshoppers we're nothing at all. We can't do this. We can't conquer this land. They've forgotten the power of the presence of God among them that, that says anything that he purposes can't be stopped. But they've forgotten that. They're relying now on their own power. As they go into the land, for whatever reason, they, they don't believe God's going to be with them to do that. And it's the most important promise that Jesus gives us. He gives us the mission in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I command you. But then the most important thing is, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so as long as we're doing the work of God, the things that He's called us to do and told us to do, then He'll be with us. And when He's with us, we don't have any need to fear. We can only worship because we know of his great love for us. And so here it says that it's not only you who are worshiping when he's among you, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. In other words, your fears will go away. He'll give you the shalom peace that's promised. He he will give that and he will exult over you with loud singing. So as you rejoice and worship over him, he rejoices and worships over you as well. I'll gather those of you who will mourn for the festival so that you'll no longer suffer reproach. In other words, where you are now, you don't get to keep the festivals. You don't get to to practice your religion. But I will gather those of you who are mourning for the festival, those people who are longing for this, as opposed to those people who have assimilated themselves into Babylon so that you'll no longer suffer reproach. But behold, at that time, I'll deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and i will change their shame into praise and renown into all the earth at that time i will bring you in at the time when i gather you together for i will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when i restore your fortunes before your eyes says the lord so the promise is that in your time you're going to see the the fullness of the restoration You'll see it in your eyes. You remember what, what Job prays is when he makes his declaration, he says, I know that in my eyes I will see God. So he believes in resurrection, that he will see God, because he's, he's basically given up. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth, and in my eyes I will see God. And so he says there will come a time in judgment— at resurrection, when I will actually see God, and I know that my Redeemer lives. And so he, he's making a declaration that he knows that ultimately all things will be made right. What Zephaniah's promise is, is more than that. It's, it's more than just, oh, ultimately, in the eschaton, in the world to come, then everything will be made right. No, here God declares, when I restore your fortune before your eyes. And so you can count on it. I'm making you a promise that you're going to see that day while you're still alive. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So what looks like a total disaster now, what looks like it can't be redeemed, I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to redeem in your eyes. I'm going to redeem it within your lifetime. You're going to see your fortunes restored And what an incredible promise that is of God to say that and to tell those people that, the the encouragement that they would have received if they were able to receive it, because sometimes we're in situations in our own lives when we can get depressed, we can get whatever, and we're not even able to receive the encouragement that God's trying to give us. And sometimes we can get so beaten down and so discouraged, we could have gone through so much for so long that we can't even imagine that redemption any longer. And it becomes a difficult thing to encourage God's people in those situations. And so many times over the life of the church, we can see that. And so one of the reasons that I read things like this story that I that I began this with today was because I want to see those encouraging stories where, where it looks like everything was lost. I mean, this guy spent three years in prison at a very young age, and then suddenly decides that he wants to be a missionary, and, and it makes literally. I mean, it just makes no sense, right? I mean, who wants to take on a guy who's just gotten out of prison? What, what reason do I have for believing that you could be um, useful for the kingdom? You've, you've been in prison during this period of time. I need to see some renewal of life. I need to see a little bit more than a jailhouse conversion before we lift you up and make you a missionary. But, but God used this guy and restored his fortunes and changed everything about his life, And he became the kind of person necessary to do the work God had prepared for him to do. And I think his brokenness had a lot to do with it, because that brokenness and God's restoration gave him a mission and a message. And I think that that's something, if you're in a place of brokenness and difficulty right now, maybe the thing to do is, is to listen and to, to listen to that Zephaniah passage and hear about God's love for you, and then ask him what the mission and message he has for your life is, and then trust him to move into that. But your mission, message will sound very much like um, Scarf fruits message, which is the, the redemption of sin, the forgiveness of sin, the love of God that it's boundless, and you can't exhaust his grace. You can't have sinned too much for for his sacrifice not to atone for that. It's a beautiful message, and you have a friend in Jesus, one who died on the cross for you, not with gritted teeth, but in love. And then he calls us to love the world that persecuted him in the same way. And so sometimes we need to hear that. We need to hear the message of redemption and restoration in order that we can hear the message that God has for us to give to the world. And sometimes, though, we can work so hard for our own redemption that we don't even leave room for God anymore, except for on the fringes of that effort. And sometimes what we're called to do is just wait for him to do the work. In the gospel lesson today we last week we were really focused on john the baptist today what we're really focusing on is john's message and his prophetic message to the church he says therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come i mean i don't think any single person i've never been in a church where people came forward and wanted to give their lives to christ and and the pastor looked at him and said you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath that was to come that's to come I mean that's just not normal. It, you, you don't normally, you know, kind of beat people up in that way. But but John's right because he sees some of these leaders of the uh, of the people coming to him, and and that's where he's really teed off. Is is that you're not sincere in what you're doing, and, and then in the way that we know that that's what his message is because he follows it up with bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So if you're really repenting, then let's see it. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And that's their basic claim always. And Jesus has to confront it as well. Is just that, hey, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm good to go. And it's exactly what he has to confront with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus doesn't get it at all. He says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking, no, I was born into the covenant. I don't have any interest in being born again. Why would I do that? I'm already in. I'm in the covenant now. It's all good. And so John's saying that don't count that as anything. Just you don't have a birthright that that can be uncoupled from faith. You you can't rely on Abraham's faith. You have to rely on your own faith. And it's the same thing we would teach in the church as opposed in the uh, Protestant church as opposed to the Roman Catholic church. And that is there's no merit of the saints that accrues and that can be, can be brought out by the church to, to apply to your sins. Well, first, I don't need that because Jesus' um, sacrifice is sufficient for that. But, but second, no, they don't have any merits. They wouldn't claim that. Paul certainly didn't claim to have any merit of his own. So he's, he's saying, don't, don't think because you have Abraham as your father, you're good to go. No, no, no. God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. He doesn't need you. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, it's not really a welcoming message for people who are coming out because they're coming out to be baptized for the repentance of sins, so that they can be forgiven by God and restored to relationship and made fit to receive the coming king. And John's saying, you know, I don't know why you're here. I don't know what your motives are. But, why, but But here's the thing. If you're here and if you're genuine and you're sincere, then we ought to be able to see that in you. Your lives ought to change. And so the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So what's he saying? If you boil it down, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. But don't just love in, in words. No, no, no. Love in, in word and deed. Show it. It has to be tangible. That kind of love has to be tangible. If you've got somebody that, that's in need, then provide for that need to the extent that you're able to do that. And it's the same thing that Jesus says when he when he's asked, who is my neighbor? Because you've got to love your neighbor as yourself, so I need to know who my neighbor is. And so what does Jesus do? He tells the parable of the good Samaritan. He doesn't tell us anything about the man who's the victim here. He just points to what the man's needs are, and the Samaritan takes care of those needs. He loved His neighbor, whoever that neighbor might be. And that's exactly what John's saying is, is that love your neighbor. And then then, so that's the crowds. Hey, what generally what do we do? We don't even know how to live this out. He says, just love your neighbor. And then the tax collectors came to be baptized and they said to, to him, teacher, what shall we do? In our positions, we we have this job, we have this role, and everybody hates us for it because, well, they have to pay us. I mean, nobody likes the tax guy, So, but it's even worse then because they're basically conspiring with Rome, and, and it's a, a, an ethical, moral question for Jews is whether or not we pay this tax because we're paying tribute to a foreign king. So they came and they said, what do we do in our jobs? How do we do it? He says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. All right, don't extort anything. Don't, don't go over and above, because one of the things they did, they would value your assets, and then your assets would be taxed. Well, so, I mean, they would get—they would they would bid a certain amount for their territory based on what they thought that they could collect, and so they would remit that amount to Rome, and then they're incentivized then in order to make a profit— to value that stuff higher than that. And so that's the way they would collect more than they were authorized to do. They would extort it by overvaluing assets. Soldiers also asked him, and what do we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, live on what you've been given to live on and don't try and extort by bribes something else. For Don't run a protection racket, I guess is the best way to do it. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And aim me. He will baptize you <coughs> with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Most of us, when we preach the good news, don't sound like John. We don't sound like the, saying he's coming to clear his threshing floor, gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Doesn't sound like good news, right? I mean, it sounds like an old Turner burn kind of a thing, But it, and, and there's nothing wrong with Turner burn. There's, there's nothing wrong with that message because we need to be clear that judgment is real, that sin has to be atoned for, or you'll pay the atonement price for it if you don't turn to Jesus and allow his sacrifice on the cross to be the atonement for your sin. If you're trying to do it yourself or you're not trying at all, then that sin will be counted against you eternally, and you'll be separated from God throughout all eternity. That That's an actual, real message, but I think the church has reacted so strongly against the perceived uh, flaw, I guess, in that message that we don't even talk about judgment anymore. It's something that we just avoid at all costs, and we only talk about grace. Well, grace is a wonderful thing, but grace is only available to sinners who repent. We have to lay hands on grace— and how do we do that? We do that by confessing of our sins and repenting of those sins and trusting, believing with all our hearts that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was sufficient for atoning for that so that I can have eternal life because of what Jesus did. And so he will baptize us with the Holy Spirit in fire. and fire. And so what does Jesus say the first work of the Holy Spirit is? Is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so, when we're convicted of those things, that's the fire of the Holy Spirit, which is intended to consume all that within us is not fit for the kingdom of God. So the reason to convict us of sin is so that we can turn to righteousness and begin to live that way, because we see it as the better way, because it's God's way. So... We've got to to be prepared to receive the love of God and the grace of God to transform us by the renewing of our minds, by the things that we approve, by the things that we long for, the things that we desire. All that stuff has to be transformed because we don't come as a blank slate. We already have desires. We already have created a million different kinds of idols in our lives, and and. The fire burns up the idols and shows them for what they are, which is nothing. And then we can begin to truly follow after him because our hearts are set on the kingdom, not on something else. It's not enough to be afraid and flee the wrath to come. No, there's more to it than that. And that is to, to embrace God's love for us, embrace him who longs to embrace us as the father of the prodigal son did, waiting for us with love in his eyes, that when we come to him and we confess our sins, which is what the prodigal did, then he gives us a new future, and he restores our fortunes in the same way that the father did. And so, but when he says restores our fortunes, so it becomes, though, what do we consider our fortune? Has that been changed? Do we see things God's way? Do we see the kingdom of God as the ultimate prize and the ultimate fortune? Or are we still looking at things of earth with stars in our eyes? Paul gives us in this short little passage from Philippians today, he he gives us the way to live, beginning with, Rejoice in the world, Lord, always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Remember this guy writing from prison? (laughs) and what he's telling them is you want to get your mind right rejoice in the lord always and again i'm going to say it one more time rejoice he's telling you if you want to get your mind right if you want to get your mind in the right place then rejoice in him always don't rejoice in other things rejoice in him rejoice in him always let your reasonableness be known to everyone And that's an important thing for Christians, I think, is is that we need to be known as those people who are reasonable, because the world's not a reasonable place. The world is out to the the dog eat dog world believes that, and so you believe that either you're the top dog, or or your view's always the same. You know, like in a in a uh, a team of dogs pulling a sled. You know, if you ain't the front dog, then. Your view, your view is always the same. And, and so what we come to believe is is that, that we believe that about the world, and so we believe there's everything is a zero-sum game, and there's a finite level of resources or a finite level of love, let's say, and, and that we've got to do whatever we can to get that. And, it, and that typically will mean that i got to cut you out. At some level, I, I've, there's only room enough, and there's only enough for me. And mine, and so we're, we're going to hoard those things, but we're going to make sure by hook or crook that you don't get any of what's rightfully ours, what we might have. So let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And the way we let that reasonableness be known to everyone is, is that, that we don't play that game. We're playing something more than a zero-sum game. We're sharing something that, that says, no, we're, we're following the God who created all of this. It belongs to him. It absolutely belongs to him. So I'm not going to fight you over this stuff. I'm going to be the person who is actually showing you that my treasure is in heaven. And and when I do that, then my reasonableness concerning things of earth is known to everybody. If I'm searching for something other than what the world wants, then I'm not going to play the game the same way the world does. And therefore, I'm going to be a reasonable person. I'm going to see through the facade and see the emperor really does have no clothes. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, that's that's another thing behind this is to say that if I'm trusting God for all things, then I don't have to spend all my time trying to get those things. Then I just make those things known to him, and then he'll bring those things into my life that are good for me. <clears throat> And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a what an admonition. Just stay in worship and stay in prayer and trust God in all things, and, and you'll be at peace. You'll have everything you need, including peace. I can't offer you any more than that, and I can't say anything greater than that.